Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 105 for the first third of April 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether or not the moon formed through a fission process from Earth. The claim in this episode is that the moon was formed when it spun off from the Earth. Those of you who have been with the podcast for over a year and a half or have gone through the archives may be wondering why I'm talking about this now when I addressed it on episode 53 on lunar formation and origin. The reason is that there is more to tell, and it has seen a resurgence of support among one particular pseudoscientist with whom I've had a few run-ins. More on that in the next episode. To remind everyone of the problem we're trying to solve, Earth's moon is somewhat abnormal so far as moons in the solar system go. It's really big relative to Earth at a quarter the size, that's about 180th of the mass. Its composition is similar to Earth's, including certain isotopes that we think means that it formed either in the same part of the solar system or from the same material as Earth. But for its size, the moon lacks a proportionally large iron core, while Earth's is abnormally big compared with other terrestrial objects. And the Earth-Moon system overall has an abnormally large amount of angular momentum. And so, as scientists, we try to find out how it could have formed that can also explain all of these weird things. One idea that was popular for about a century was put forward by George Darwin in 1879. Right there, you have a nice argument from authority for those who like this model, the name Darwin being attached to it in some way. Although I've generally found that most people today who advocate this model are also not fans of evolution, but eh, that's cognitive dissonance for you. George Darwin, in this case, was the son of Charles Darwin, the famous evolutionary biologist. His model, often called the fission model, or as I called it in episode 53, the big spin, posits that when Earth was a young, hot, and virile young thing, it was spinning really, really fast, and it was molten. Which we still generally sort of think is the case today, just not spinning quite as fast as Darwin did. Because it was spinning really, really fast, and it was molten and easier to deform, eventually a piece of it bubbled off, or fizzed off. Similar, sort of, to cellular mitosis. Well, Actually, not really. More like if you had a blob of mercury, as in the, the metal mercury, and you put it in the middle of a merry-go-round and spun it really, really fast, a piece of it might bud off. For the time, this was reasonable, and there wasn't that much evidence against it. Adaptations to the model suggested that a resonance with the sun and solar tides helped pull the moon off of Earth once the bulge or bud had started to form. And of course, there's the Pacific Ocean. A large chunk of Earth's crust seems to be missing, at least to 19th century geologists, and this is embodied by the Pacific Ocean Basin. And it was proposed by Osmond Fisher, an English geologist and geophysicist who was a contemporary of Darwin, that that is what happened. The fission model was still taught in schools during the Apollo era in the 1960s and early 70s, and it seemed to get support from lunar samples that showed not only was the moon's crust similar to Earth's in density, but also in composition. And there was still that hole in the Pacific Ocean that needed to be filled. It also somewhat easily explained why the moon lacks a big iron core. 
if it spun off of Earth, one would think that it would be made of material nearer to Earth's surface, while the iron-nickel core stays with Earth itself. It doesn't really help how the Earth has a really, really big core because the Moon's mass isn't enough to balance that out, but that's a separate issue. And at the time, we didn't really know that Earth had an abnormally large iron core relative to the other terrestrial planets. We didn't have those measurements of other planets yet. Meanwhile, various calculations can be done that estimate how fast Earth would need to be spinning in order to bud off a moon. When I do the math, equating centrifugal force with gravitational, solving for velocity and putting in angular velocity equations, I get a result that early Earth would need to spin once on its axis about every 1.5 hours, as in the day would be only one and a half hours long, as opposed to today's being about 24 hours long. Other people with more complicated models get different results, but all put the rotation rate somewhere around two to three ish hours, which starts to be a problem. Keep in mind that this is a very, very basic physics calculation. I'm using basic algebra, and I'm not really sneaking in extra terms into the equation like some people say some physicists do, and this is math that people have been doing for over a century. But what this means is that Earth would need to be spinning at an untenable rate for things to work out. There's simply no way that we know of to get Earth to spin so quickly from the basic process of planet formation. Even smacking it with lots of really big things, but small enough that they don't destroy the planet, doesn't really do the trick. Not only that, but we also don't know how to slow it down enough once the moon would butt off. You would certainly get a slowdown due to conservation of angular momentum, like an ice skater who's spinning and puts their arms out, is going to slow down in their rotation rate because of angular momentum conservation. But it's not enough, and it's still not enough even with the last four and a half billion years of spin down from other processes, mainly tidal interactions. You just can't get Earth slowing down enough that much in that amount of time if you somehow get it to spin up that fast in the first place. Not only that, but dynamic models that have tried to model the moon budding off of Earth showed that the budding moon would cause an instability in Earth's spin. This would lead to the spin slowing down before the budding could be completed and the moon would not separate from the planet. If you're not sure how to visualize that, think of a large ball of pizza dough. A really, really large ball of pizza dough, like maybe enough to make three large pizzas. It's nice and elastic, good, nice, sweet pizza dough. You start to spin it really fast and arrange it so that a piece starts to butt off of one side. As you're spinning it, and then at least when I did this experiment over a clean work surface so that I could still use the dough, the entire mass just would no longer spin nicely. It wobbled and wiggled, and effectively, it went unstable. As with all analogies, this one isn't perfect, but it might give you at least a little bit of a better idea of how to visualize the problem with this scenario. Another issue is that if this happened, the moon should orbit along Earth's equator. Instead, the moon orbits about 5.1 degrees away from the equator. Yet another issue is that models show that, in this fission scenario, the new moon should be around 20% as massive as Earth. While it's about 25% Earth's diameter, because mass goes as the cube of diameter, if you have the same density but the moon is less dense, the moon really is only about 1 80th of the mass of Earth. 
There's simply no good way to explain that rather large discrepancy. Oh, and it also doesn't really explain the anomaly of large angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system. Also damning was two other lines of evidence that showed that the Moon could not possibly have sprouted from Earth's Pacific Ocean, radiometric dating and plate tectonics. In that order, the first problem is that several decades ago we could date both the ocean floor and the Moon, especially once samples were brought back with the Apollo astronauts. The ocean floor of the Pacific was no older than 200 million years, million with an M. Practically all of the lunar samples were instead several billion years old, billion with a B. The oldest rock, called the Genesis Rock, was brought back by Apollo 15 astronauts and contains minerals that are 4.46 billion years old, over 20 times as old as the oldest Pacific Ocean crust. The second major problem against the Pacific Ocean being a moon-forming scar is plate tectonics and continental drift. Darwin's idea was proposed in 1879, while many scientists before him, and who were contemporary with him, had proposed continental drift, it wasn't until the late 1800s and early 1900s that the geological community really started to advocate the idea in force. Alfred Wegener was the first to present the idea that the continents formed a single landmass that broke apart, and he presented it at the German Geological Society on January 6, 1912. Lots of evidence, not only the shape of the continents, but also where fossils appeared on continents separated by large oceans, was presented over the years. But it was very controversial for several decades, with various persons advancing gigantic transient land bridges to account for the fossils appearing on multiple continents. This controversy persisted throughout the mid-20th century, which is probably why the fission model was probably still being taught in schools as viable during the Apollo era. Nowadays, there is overwhelming evidence in favor of continental drift and plate tectonics, not only from the shapes of the land masses and the fossils, but magnetic striping, earthquake epicenters, and that we can actually measure continents moving, not only with GPS, but also with astrometry, the very precise measurements of star positions as seen from various locations on Earth. What this means is that, say, you're on one location on Earth, and you measure the position of a star that should be directly overhead. Then, ten years later, it's moved a teeny tiny bit. Meanwhile, from every other location on Earth, it hasn't moved at all. That means that you have moved, not the star. And so, not only are the ages of the Pacific Ocean and the Moon wildly different, but the Pacific Ocean did not exist in its present state, or really at all, tens to hundreds of millions of years ago. And of course, all of those other reasons that I spent the last 10-ish uh, minutes talking about as to why this model doesn't work. Pretty much all scientists today no longer consider the fission model in any way a viable model for the Moon's formation. It simply doesn't work. It doesn't explain all of the observations, it itself doesn't work dynamically, and there isn't even any decent evidence for it beyond the outdated and disproven ideas for Earth's structure, namely the continental drifting with the Pacific Ocean. You would think that it would be dead at this point, relegated to the history books like geocentrism. But as you learned in episode 78, there are modern geocentrists. And, just as there are modern geocentrists, there are modern people who think the moon butted off of Earth. One of those people was Tom Van Flandern, last spoke of during the two-parter on whether the asteroid belt was a planet, 
perhaps best known for his ideas about exploding planets. While he is now deceased, his meta-research website remains online so anyone can read it, and I've linked to it in the show notes on the relevant page. Ongoing champions of Van Flandern's failed models reside in Richard Hoagland and his one-time co-author, Mike Barra. In his book, The Choice, Mike talks about how the moon formed through the fission process. Since I do not own the book and do not plan on giving Mike any money, I'm not going to comment further on it. But in the next episode, we're going to take this argument further and apply it to planets themselves, because Mike Barra, again stemming from work from Tom Van Flandern, is a very, very large advocate of the fission model for planetary formation, whereby he thinks that planets are spun off from the sun in pairs. In new news for this week, we have stuff related to episode 85 on Blood Moons, aka a scary, spooky-sounding name for lunar eclipses. Because of the approaching lunar eclipse on the night of April 14th to 15th, depending on your time zone, it is getting a lot of press, and its advocates' books are selling out before they're even released. Traffic is going up a teeny tiny bit on my websites where I talk about it, so I do encourage everyone who may be hearing about it from friends, family, co-workers, or people on the street with breadboard signs, that you direct them to episode 85 of the podcast. And, of course, if the lunar eclipse is visible from your own special spot in the world, and it's a clearer night out, go outside and watch. NASA has an eclipse website that shows you where it's visible. Just search the internet for NASA Eclipse 2014 or go to Wikipedia or wherever and you will find it. The entire eclipse will be visible from almost the entire United States and Canada, except for the far western parts of Alaska and northeast parts of North America. It will be fully visible throughout Mexico and Central America and most of South America except for Brazil. The very beginning is visible from Western Africa, and the end will be visible at moonrise from New Zealand, Australia, and a few of those other countries in the area. Make sure that you check your local time zones. Don't get thrown off by a day here or there. For me in the Colorado United States of America, it starts at about 10.56 p.m. on April 14th, although nothing will really be visibly changing to the eye until about midnight my time roughly an hour later. So the evening of the 14th into the 15th, although during moonrise in Australia, the evening of the 15th, I think. I really hate time zones. Anyway, due to various personal time constraints, I'm going to cut this episode off at this point and get right on with the end matter, returning somewhat to my roots with just a primary main segment. That wraps up this very fascinating topic, I'm sure, for the 105th episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. I thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment 
most places, anywhere on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, and I'm even on that newfangled Twitter thing called uh, Twitter, I think. You can tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on that other newfangled thing, iTunes, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell lots of random people. 